episode 367. Why would a hospital direct contract with an employer looking to pay less? Today, I'm speaking with Doug Hetherington. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Lots of talk about direct contracting going on these days. Many of you will be familiar with the term. But in short, direct contracting means when a self-insured employer directly contracts with a provider organization with no payer in the middle of that arrangement. And when I say employer, I mean the employer and all their peeps, their TPAs, repricers, other vendors and consultants. Most of this talk, though, seems to come from the point of view of the employer. It's super easy to quantify what's in it for employers. U.S. healthcare costs get blamed for all kinds of things. Companies who have lost big global contracts because all of those fringe benefits cost way too much around here. If we're looking around for a why on that point, let me refer you to last week's episode 366 with Dr. Kevin Schulman entitled Our Dysfunctional Health Benefits System or the show with Dr. Wayne Jenkins, episode 358, about how premium and deductible financial toxicity negatively impacts plan members. Never forget that financial toxicity is clinical toxicity. So, like a knight riding in on a white horse, direct contracting with a provider organization has some interesting potential. Most obviously, when an employer contracts directly with a provider organization, they cut out the middleman. They put the direct in direct contracting. Considering the multi-billions of dollars that some of these middle people are raking in every quarter in profits and or margins, cutting out the middle people could have a financial upside as big as those billions in profit. If those billions get passed on to patients in the form of lower copays slash coinsurance or premiums, there could be some big benefits to direct contracting for pretty much all involved, except the middle people, of course. My guest today, Doug Hetherington, says that it's not uncommon to see on the low end a 10% reduction in costs to maybe up to 50% reduction in costs. It's amazing what can be accomplished when everybody starts working together for the good of the local community and patient and is held accountable for more than just revenue maximization. But there's also quality and patient outcomes upside to these cost reductions. Here's a few we can speculate about. For example, if the middle people add layers of bureaucracy and administrative burden that make it really hard and or upsettingly inefficient for anyone trying to serve their patients' needs to actually serve their patients' needs, then yeah, direct contracting can make getting the right care to patients faster and easier. That matters to burnt out clinicians. Also, here's another potential point to ponder benefit designs. Listen to the show with Dr. Mark Fendrick on this, but most benefit designs offered by middle people are really, as they call them, blunt instruments. High value care costs as much or more as low value care. Deductibles don't care if you need your diabetic foot ulcers checked urgently or you might get your foot amputated. It's a known fact that health outcomes plummet in January when all of a sudden cancer meds or whatever essential life-saving medical innovation costs as much as a patient's deductible. So patients abandon care and outcomes go down. When an employer direct contracts with a provider, 
in its most sophisticated form, which my guest today, again, Doug Hetherington, calls a full-pay open contract, the employer and the provider work together to construct a benefit design that helps patients get the best outcomes. Or here's another benefit. For the whole community, not just the employer, the whole community keeps the money local. Many of these middle people are big national companies. As Dave Chase and others have said often, when these fortune whatever companies arrive on the scene, lots of money exits stage left out of the community. If local employers contract with local providers, the money stays local. So all that I have said has been said before. What I wanted to dig into today is the why and the how from the provider organization standpoint. I got curious about this after my conversation with Katie Talento, episode 350. She talks about a major barrier for self-insured employers who want to work with local hospitals is that the local hospitals couldn't, frankly, get out of their own way. Maybe they couldn't see the benefit for themselves that made the juice worth the squeeze. That's what I talk about today with Doug Hetherington. What's in it for providers and what a provider organization interested in direct contracting needs to actually pull it off? Doug Hetherington is CEO of Health to Business, and he has done and continues to do pioneering work with community hospitals in eastern Idaho and elsewhere. Health to Business helps facilitate direct contracting between hospitals and local employers. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Doug Hetherington, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. So if we're speaking from a health system point of view... Why am I interested in direct contracting? I think what we have seen over the last, in particular, three decades is plan designs have been degraded. I used to think that, you know, when we would raise a deductible or an out-of-pocket, ultimately we were shifting costs to the plan member. In many instances, we're learning that that cost is now shifted back to the health system. When the employer's cost shift to patients, it's not like, you know, there's a reason why medical debt is the major driver of bankruptcy. So the patients who the costs got shifted to can't pay their bills and therefore the hospitals aren't getting paid or they're not getting paid timely. At that time, the health systems are like, well, hey, if we work directly with employers, maybe we can figure this out together because I raised my prices so high that I no longer am getting paid. Like, is that the short version? Yeah, the first part is definitely from, a you know, the integrity of the premium dollar, the provider is collecting less and less of that dollar. And again, being forced to now collect that from the members in their community, right? It's not the insurance companies. But I think the other side of this is that, you know, not all providers are equal. You may go into a given market and let's say that there are three hospitals. Uh, hospital A, B, and C are all equal size, relatively equal in the services they provide, but it doesn't necessarily mean that their quality outcomes or even costs are in line with one another. This is an opportunity for maybe a lower cost health system, one that wants to work more closely with the employers in their community to not only get closer to the purchaser, but to potentially increase the volume of, of commercial business that comes through their doors. By working more directly, it's not uncommon under a direct contract to achieve 75, 80, even 90% of, of commercial business that just because of the incentives that you're putting in place, lower, more transparent costs, which certainly give control back to the employer. And then also it incentivizes that employer to create a carrot, if you will, improving plan designs and incentives to select your direct contracted provider 
So it really does have multiple advantages. But as we've learned, I think one of the, the major advantages out there that isn't all too often discussed is the idea of really knowing your purchaser now. In the traditional system, the employer is purchasing a product through an insurance company. The provider is then contracting via a network with that insurance company. Provider and employer really have very little interaction with one another and understand the needs of one another. By circumventing the insurance carrier, now they can have those direct communication, better understand what each party in this equation needs. And what we find is the true beneficiaries of this are your frontline clinicians and the plan members, or as we like to think of them, patients themselves. They're the ones that really win in this full equation. So if I'm ticking through sort of the points that you're making, number one, if it's a competitive marketplace, and I think that's probably an important caveat there, if it's a competitive marketplace with more than one provider in the area, this is certainly a way to increase commercial market share improve the payer mix, as they say, right? And have it slant more towards commercial patients, which everybody knows pay more for care than Medicare patients or certainly Medicaid patients. In addition, just given, you know, if what is the MLR ratios these days, like 15%, which basically means that a payer, if you, if you have a traditional plan in the middle there, they're taking 15% right out of the, the middle. So if you get the employer working directly with some kind of provider organization, you've got 15% right there that you can split between you. <laughs> Obviously, there's going to be some administrative fees, but they probably don't add up to 15%. So there's some profitability, additional profitability there. But then thirdly, we've got benefit designs are more aligned with patient care, which certainly helps patients. You know, just the quintessential, some diabetes patient is not taking their insulin in January. The show with Dr. Mark Fendrick, he talks about this a lot how patient outcomes diminish in January. Like why? Because benefit designs create barriers for chronic care patients. So if you align benefit designs with patient care, then patients benefit. But then certainly, how much would it suck to be a clinician in that situation and have patients that were doing well suddenly not be doing well? And you're just watching the financial toxicity take its toll. If I'm a health system and I'm kind of thinking to myself, hey, this could be sort of interesting. Are there any must-haves or essentials or, or things that I need to work through prior to going in this direction? Most people would probably agree that it's a two-party agreement. You have a, an employer, a health plan on one side, and then you have a provider on the other. And the first part is, as I would say, there, there's really more parties than that because in most cases, the employer or plan themselves may not have the capabilities to actually manage that agreement. And from a provider's perspective, it can be very onerous to set up these agreements and manage them. If you can imagine any given marketplace that literally may have thousands of employers offering health plans, how is that health system going to effectively manage all of those relationships and all of those contracts? So we tend to think of it in kind of maybe two broad categories, closed direct contracts and open direct contracts. And the closed is really the idea where it's a two-party arrangement. Nobody else can access that agreement. It's between a plan and a provider. When you begin to contemplate open agreements, we think of them in, in kind of three categories. The first being what we would say are open with constraints. The idea where there's some requirement for accessing that contract, but it would be ultimately open to multiple employers. So a health system has an agreement that they feel represents their value in the marketplace. If they wanted to work directly with an employer, that employer would be required to meet the requirements of that agreement in order to participate. Plan designs could be 
certain steerage mechanisms. It could be the removal of uh, prior authorizations, for example, which is very popular in this space. Second category would be an open contract without constraints. In essence, hey, we're open for business. We would love to work directly with you. We really don't put any fundamental requirements for you to do that as an employer. And then the last one, which could be arguable, it's still part of an open agreement, but it's what we think of as open full pay. And this is really kind of an advanced level, maybe next generation of direct contracting, but it's the idea of removing, if you'll think about it this way, the clinician and the patient from the financial equation. So it's interesting that I asked you what the essentials are to think about from a health system perspective. And immediately we get to, there's a lot of contract administration. That's the first thing, which I'm not surprised because for two reasons. Number one, Katie Talento was on the show in January of 2022. And she was talking about the barriers to creating direct contracts. And it seemed like the biggest one was the health system can't figure out how to do it. So from that standpoint, but number two had Dr. David Schenker on the show a couple of weeks ago. And the one thing that he, the whole conversation was about administrative burden and specifically the administrative burden centered on administering so many divergent types of contracts. And one of the things that they discovered in their research is that if you start to standardize contracts, you can cut administrative burden by, it was a whopping percentage, like 63% or something like that, which is considering the true administrative burden in this country, it's billions of dollars. 63% of that is, let's just say, not insignificant. So what I'm understanding you saying is that you can, if you're a health system that's sort of thinking about this, you could insist on a closed contract. That's typical. You get gag clauses like that's, you're talking about a closed contract there. Two parties negotiate in secret and then don't share what they are doing with anybody else. And it's singular to those two particular entities. That's one way to do it. And probably one reason why administrative burden is what it is in this country. Nothing for nothing. But then you could also go with the open contract, which I'm understanding, you know, you come up with your contract terms, your parameters, what you're going to pay for, and then as a health system, and then you invite whoever employers, you know, you pretty much just put it out there and saying, let's say, hey, employers in my marketplace, if you'd like to work with me, like, here you go, here's the contract, you can use it. And then there's a couple of flavors with that. One of them is with constraints, as you just said, like IE, there's no prior auths. But then the open full pay one, I'm assuming that that is getting a little bit more value based in the equation. You're, you're leaning more into how are we paying for outcomes? How are we paying for value? I think that's definitely an advantage of the full pay contract is that it does. It provides that opportunity to say, we're almost fully funding the dollar on the front end. So let's make this all about the experience, the outcomes at the end of the day. And, and, I, and I think that's the direction we need to be moving if we're going to actually solve the cost problems in healthcare, as well as address the, the fundamental health needs of the, the society as well. So is it easier for an employer contracting directly with a provider to figure out how they're going to pay for value, which seems to confound typical payers outside of some very specific pilots? Some of them are doing some some interesting pilots. But if we're talking about the vast majority of patients out there on any of the traditional carrier plans, it's, it's FFS. And even if they call it value, there's just that chart that came out in Just Healthcare, which showed that like pretty much 71%, I think, 
of all patients that are on, in air quotes, value-based care plans. It's basically an FFS chassis with just some quality overlay, right? Which I'm not disparaging. It's just not what I would consider, what most people would consider (laughs) value-based care. So why would it be that a provider organization, an employer can move forward in a value-based way? Or maybe you could describe exactly what you're talking about there. You bring up a good point there that uh, the idea of value-based care, we tend to think of that, you know, moving away from a fee-for-service model. The challenge with it, as, as we've identified in the market space, is that once you start to get into that space from a provider standpoint, direct contracting removes you from some of the burdens of the regulations that may exist where you'd have to operate more like an insurance company, but you can still get that kind of more direct relationship with the purchaser and increase the volume significantly. You can still track it back, even though it may operate in a fee-for-service model. You know, assuming you have a large enough population, even a couple hundred lives up to several thousand, it is measurable to say, hey, how are we performing, whether on a you know per employee per month, a per member per month basis? What you're referring to there is the allure for providers to become payviders or stand up their own insurance plan. Why would any provider in their right mind want to be a payer? It's easy because in the current model, when a provider does all the right things and improves patient outcomes, who reaps the value of what they've done? The insurer. I mean, I don't see any examples anywhere and anybody out there, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But say you built as a provider an amazing clinically integrated network or a fantastic center of excellence providing only appropriate care. Those providers have worked their bums off and spent their own money to achieve the results that they're getting. And the commercial payer takes all of those savings and pockets them. I don't see employer premiums going down. I don't see co-pays or co-insurance rates going down. So neither the employer nor members, patients are financially benefiting from any of that. If anybody along the patient journey does better, the financial rewards always, I don't know, somehow or another seem to accrue to a middle person. So direct contracting, I could definitely see could help out with that weird witchcraft where all money saved through better care delivery somehow or another roll toward the middle, right? There will be opportunity for health systems and employers, communities as well, to really begin to explore what does a value-based model begin to look like? Because my belief is, is that plan designs will inherently improve the ability for a health system to have a more positive impact on the overall health and outcomes of a given population will also improve, which means we're going to better understand the dollars within that community. And ultimately, that'll provide a pathway to where we really could begin to contemplate what would a value-based model in that community start to look like. But again, I think we're we're, we're still early in that evolution. Well, you did bring up a, a word that I keyed in on immediately, which is data. So if you have a a provider organization and an employer working together who are freely sharing data with each other relative to the outcomes and the spend and, you know, just all of the different facets of what goes into providing great patient care. I mean, just that in and of itself is unique, especially if that is going on with any kind of immediacy, like i.e. not a year later or something, which is typically if you're a provider organization and you're trying to do something in order to improve patient care, it's 
hard to get the data timely enough that you can be proactive and or reactive or even remember what you were doing <laughs> during that uh, reporting period. Well, one of the things we find, which is uh, maybe surprising to many, is that when you start having conversations, even with your largest health systems that are you know quite advanced, they may be doing some fantastic things in the Medicare, Medicaid space and have a really good understanding of what are the costs, what are the outcomes. And it's because they are receiving the data from, in this case, CMS in most instances. When you begin to shift to the commercial market, surprisingly or not, you find that there's not a lot of willingness from the traditional payers to proactively share the data. And we find that uh, across most marketplaces, the providers are somewhat flying blind as to what are the real outcomes. You know, health plans are moving from one carrier from year to year, and they obviously lament the fact that similar, they don't even find out that they've lost members going from one network, you know, in network to out of network until February or March of every year. That's when they begin to realize that those members have moved on. So I think that, you know, certainly within a direct contracting environment, that's one of the inherent benefits is that both parties have a desire to utilize that data in a meaningful way. But that's probably where one of the challenges of direct contracting comes in. There's a couple of areas for providers that I think are, you know, really important to begin to track the data. What you're describing is that Sharing data is a really broad stroke statement, but there is actually a question which many may gloss over because they think it's self-evident, but what data exactly and specifically should we be capturing here? Yeah. Right. At the most basic layer, eligibility data. You know, it, let's assume that there's already a relationship between the, the health plan, the employer and the provider that doesn't necessarily articulate who are the employees. And as we know, employees are not constant. Right. We have turnover within organizations. So who are the members that are eligible for this plan and are they easily identifiable at the time of service? Then what were the outcomes? What was the experience in the traditional network setting? They don't get that information in a direct contract opportunity, now they have that ability to actually interact with that purchaser, the employer, and bring that information back to them, where the employer is also gaining maybe more anecdotal data. And so it creates an opportunity for the two of them to begin to really have conversations around this. In our experience, it's been exciting when you know a specific employer can begin to look at their own claims data and identify that maybe, for example, they're having issues with nervous stress. That's been very very common, certainly throughout the pandemic. And we've actually seen where those providers will reach out to these employers and offer to bring in a subject matter expert around this. And so I think that right there is just a, an inherent way that on a really basic level, you can take data and information and create a better experience. And then as we continue to improve that, I think we're going to be able to get into the greater disease states and obviously have a much better impact on really what are probably the major cost drivers of healthcare today. So ticking through some of the things that you said, number one, you said don't underestimate the importance of eligibility data. And it's interesting that you say that because I was doing a little bit of recon on how a contract was performing in the marketplace. And I went on Facebook and I looked at some reviews and the biggest ding that patients were saying is that they walked into a provider with some card and the providers were like, I've never, I have no idea what this is. So I think from patient perspective, 
provider, you know, like you say provider, like it's a homogeneous entity. There's a lot of smaller organizations that are sometimes part of these larger organizations. So it'd be really important that everybody throughout the entire organization knows who's eligible for what. So I can certainly see what you're saying just based on my 15 minutes of looking into it. (laughs) But then also the data that winds up getting collected. I've often heard it said there's really only two entities that are very concerned about a whole person care. And that's the employer and the patient because an employer has absenteeism and and productivity and if the person doesn't show up for work or if they go out on disability or whatever. So enabling the employer to work with the providers directly, they can create partnerships. Yeah, I think you bring up some good points. And after probably the last five years or so of spending so much time with providers, I've kind of coined a couple of phrases. It's like we have to get out of the rut and stop thinking the same way we always have. The challenge with it is because they've been shielded from the ultimate purchasers, the employers, it's not uncommon for us to you know, have conversations with whether it's a CFO, vice president of RevCycle, CEO of an organization, and really begin to discuss some of these catastrophic claims that exist, which often are born out of the walking wounded, those that are the you know, a very small percent of the participants, but they may account for 50 to 80 percent of the total plan costs. And that's not always who we really focus on is what we find out when when they're communicated to by traditional payers. It's not conversations around these larger disease states and these, you know, million dollar shock claims that we hear about. They're more concerned about utilization of labs and MRIs and CT scans, which to me that represents, you know, a kind of a basic level diagnostic information that's a leading indicator of these larger disease states. And so sometimes you really begin to wonder, it's like, why is there such a a high level of misalignment? But if you really do believe that these providers are our community infrastructure, when given appropriate information and opportunity, they're very willing to make some significant changes. So then how much can an employer save on a direct contract then, like just on average? From a cost standpoint, it's not uncommon to see maybe a low end 10% reduction in cost on the higher end, even upwards 50%. And I know that sounds like a just almost a crazy absurd number, but that we've seen it, right? We've seen this from plan time and time is again. Is that because the prices that are negotiated are lower or is it because you don't wind up with avoidable acute events? People are actually doing all the preventative care because their benefit designs are correct. What is this a result of? There's actually multiple factors that come into play. There's efficiency of administration that is certainly part of it. But what I tend to think is probably one of the greatest driving factors of this is financial alignment. So if you kind of step out from that, you know, to that 100,000 foot view of costs within healthcare, and especially in the commercial marketplace, I don't think anybody would argue that, you know, we've been hearing for, you know, gosh, you know, decade to two decades now that we're averaging six, seven, eight percent per year. And in some instances, employers are realizing 30 to even 50% renewal increases, typically as a result of of a shock claim. That's really created a tremendous amount of volatility. And yet that's what I would say is the health finance side of it. If you actually look at healthcare costs, what is healthcare going up by on an annualized basis? And, and let's specific, you know, hone in on medical service, 2%. Across the country, it's an average of 2% increases over that same period of time. 
that's where I often tell people it's like we pay for these these insurance plans, whether you know fully insured or self-funded, and yet what you're paying for that and how they're assessing the risk is not necessarily in line with the actual costs of care. So when an employer and a provider contract directly what together, what happens is the employer is actually detaching themselves from that high profit financial system and actually now anchoring their financial experience to that of the local provider system. So yes, we have this inherent just kind of efficiencies that are gained right out of the gates. And often because of the the relationship they develop, these providers are willing to give, you know, cost concessions a better deal to these employers. And it's because they are. They're getting access from the purchaser direct. They're probably going to get higher volume. You know, going back to the idea of having a hospital that has 33% market share, as you can imagine, I'm going to give another 10, 15% discount, but now I increase my market share to 80 or 90%. That seems like a, a pretty fair trade to me. Works for the employer. And how do you do that? through plan design. And if you think about plan design, this is a, you know, physical therapy is a great area. Physical therapists, for the most part, are regarded as specialists. Many health plans have, you know, maybe a $20, $30 copay for primary care, but it's double or it all goes to deductible if you go to a specialist. And so in a direct relationship, this is an opportunity for the employer to actually adjust that benefit. And maybe it's a $10 copay to go to the direct provider, whether it's primary care or physical therapy. It allows that employer to kind of reimagine how they want their plan members to access healthcare. And the providers in this instance can be a, a fantastic guide in how these employers can more efficiently structure their plans. And you're referring there to the well-known issue that, what, 50% of back surgeries are unnecessary and the patient would have done just as well for like way less money had they just gotten physical therapy instead of enduring the expense and pain and rehabilitation required with back surgery. So through effective plan design, you can encourage the use of evidence-based clinical pathways and in the process, save a bunch of money while improving outcomes, right? So to, to the answer, yes, the, the savings are tremendous, but just through some, you know, a little bit of thoughtful plan design, you can actually also enhance the clinical experience as well. And are you seeing the direct contracting being much more prevalent in competitive environments? In other words, there's been a lot of talk in this country about how consolidation has driven up healthcare costs. Zach Cooper put this out. If you're dealing with a consolidated health system that they're the only game in town, prices are going to be on average 23% more than in a competitive space. But there's also absolutely no incentive for that consolidated monopolistic health system to do absolutely anything. I mean, they can just milk the current system and make all kinds of cash. So from what I'm understanding, direct contracting works best in areas where there's multiple potential entities where somebody's trying to get a leg up over somebody else. Potentially. I tend to think every, from a healthcare standpoint anyway, every community is very unique. What they have from a healthcare infrastructure, what the needs and desires are, who are the traditional payers in that market, what's the sophistication level of the brokers, the advisors that are kind of guiding these employers, all of these come into play. I would say that I think consolidation in some ways is one of the reasons why we're probably seeing more movement towards direct contracting. 
many of these health systems now are quite robust in their overall service offering, both from a breadth and depth perspective. So any individual health system where you could establish a contract may represent 85, 95% of the potential services that you're going to have in your health plan. So I think that drives efficiency, certainly. I'm not going to necessarily disagree with you as far as when you do have almost a monopolistic health type situation in a given market. However, what, what we're also finding is, and, and maybe this is more accurate as you move into the, the periphery of the metropolitan areas and certainly into rural communities, there's a term that we use called out-migration. It's the idea where I live in a rural community, my employer is providing me you know, a health plan, but when all of a sudden I need a, a significant healthcare service, the propensity of that member to travel into the, the metropolitan area is likely higher than maybe somewhere else where it is a more competitive landscape where they have the opportunity to find lower cost services. When all of a sudden these health systems begin to engage in direct contracting, with these community employers and now incentives are in place for them to select that, you know, local rural community provider versus going into the metropolitan area. I hate to say it, but the dollar talks and members are really trying to begin to look and say, how do I reduce, you know, my cost obligation when I need to seek healthcare services? Obviously, the incentives is far less if it's a consolidated health system because they don't have market share concerns per se, particularly. But, you know, if the inflation, if they're unable to raise their prices potentially as much as they have before, I mean, looking at that 15% middle insurer market, you know, like those could be dollars on the table. So maybe it's the next frontier and managing to increase revenues without increasing prices. I was talking to someone, an EBC employee, uh, employer benefit consultant, and he told me a very, very big consolidated health system that just dominates their area had reached out and contacted him with an interest in direct contracting. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and he said that this health system was starting to get its lunch eaten by payers standing up their own ASCs, ambulatory surgical centers. So they wanted to move business from that payer by doing direct contracting. So I guess there's also that scenario. So do you want to just talk a little bit about Health2 Business? We're a direct contract administration organization. Our sole job is to develop and administer direct contracts. Doug Hetherington, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you very much, Stacey. I appreciated it. It was a great time. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you. Thanks so much for listening.